Hello, this is Wade. You know, it's always my hope that you'll be blessed and inspired in your walk with the Lord as you listen today. Well, if you have your Bibles today, if you'll turn them over to uh, John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, as we uh, begin a new sermon series. We started last week, and uh, this is the second week of it. It's a study in the Gospel of John. Uh, Today we're going to look at one of the great mysteries of God, and uh, it is something that is alluded to by our text today, verses 4 and 5 of John chapter 1. And uh, we're going to put this on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible, so you can follow along. And it says this, and let's just go ahead and read it, John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Now, we grasp what John is trying to do here. He's got this beautiful beginning. It's unlike any of the other Gospels. And we went over verse 1 and th- uh, through 3 last week, and it is, a, it is a proclamation of the deity of Jesus Christ. That's what John is doing. John is an old man when he writes his gospel. He's looking back at his, he's not one of those disciples that was young when they wrote their gospel. He's an old man now, and he's looking at it from a different viewpoint And the main theme here is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the proclamation. And he makes those three great declarations in verse 1 of chapter 1. He says, first in the beginning was the Word. And I, I think that's amazing because what he's saying is, in the beginning was, not before, not became, it is was the Word. Jesus was self-existent. That's what he's saying. In the second thing, he says the Word was with God. It, he shows us that he was independent. He is, he is a part of the, the Godhead. He's a divine person in the Godhead. And third, the Word was God. He's simply not just a half-breed. He's not just partially divine. He is fully God. And John is, in his first epistle, he declares this idea in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2. He's an eyewitness, and he says this. He says, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning. Now, Phyllis, I want you just to hold this slide up there for me until I get done here, because I want to make a point, and I should have told you this ahead of time, so I want to make sure I got you right now. Just hold this slide. It says, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning. So he's pointing to Jesus. He was in the beginning. Whom we have heard and seen, we saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. That's an amazing statement there. Okay, go ahead to verse 2. This one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. And I love the last part here. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. Do you see that that timeline? He was in the beginning. He was with the Father. 
but he then now has been revealed to us. And so he's speaking of this. And I think it's amazing that we see this theme of verse 1 wrapped in this epistle of John. And then we also see three times this idea. This is a sermon that John probably preached, that he, Jesus Christ, is life and light. And so we see this. In short, what, John, what John's really trying to tell us is this, and this is my first point, Jesus became flesh. God became flesh, literally. Now, the Latin term here is carne. Carne means flesh in Latin. And literally, theologians use the word incarnation because of carne is in there. And so that's a Greek word. So when we see the incarnation, we talk about the incarnation. What we're talking about is God coming in the form of a baby. That's when we usually talk about it is during Christmas or what some people call Advent is this idea that God came in the flesh. God con carne, <laughs> literally. Theologically, this is a critical piece of doctrine. As one scholar put it, and I quote, the incarnation remains one of the deepest mysteries of the Christian faith. We cannot afford to be indifferent to this doctrine, for our eternal salvation hinges to a great degree on what we believe about it, end quote. You know, when I was working on my thesis for my master's, my thesis was about preachers, pastors who are in pulpits today who are not believers. And one of the questions that arose in that thesis is this, if you do not believe in the incarnation, are you truly a Christian? If you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, are you truly a Christian? And we have pastors that are filling pulpits today that do not believe in the incarnation, do not believe in the resurrection, and by definition, they are not Christian. And there are many that are doing that and are in pulpits today. And when you go there, they'll, some are, will even be daring enough to actually say, well, we're really not sure if the resurrection happened. Well, we're not really sure that this is true about the incarnation. Some of them can't say that because their congregation would kick them out of the pulpit. And so they beat around the bush about it. But my friends, definitions being what they are, if you believe in the incarnation and the resurrection, you are a Christian because you basically believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave and that he is the son of God. Otherwise, you don't make that definition. When God became flesh, something happened. The invisible became visible. I want you to think about that. When Jesus Christ came into the flesh. When, and when we celebrate Christmas, that's exactly what's happening. He became visible. And though God's majesty was disguised by flesh, and though God may cover his deity by flesh, and though God may hide his almighty character by flesh, God cannot cease to be God. And that's why Jesus walked the earth and did the things he did, because he is God. So I want you to understand that the incarnation does not imply that Jesus ceased being God. He has always been God. There's an ancient Latin saying that expresses this, and it's coming from like Jesus' mouth. That's how they would have worded it. And it simply says this, I am what I am, that is God. I was not what I am, that is man. I am now called God as well as man. That is from an ancient 
text that uh, was known in the ancient church, trying to get people to understand what the incarnation literally means. Jesus became God, fully God, fully man, by uniting two natures into, divine, into the divine and human in one person. And that union is like the most sacred and deep mystery. How does that work? How does it? We don't know. It is something that only God knows. But I want you to consider this. The messianic prophecies that, that God would be both God, Jesus, this Messiah, would be both God and human. We see it. When speaking to uh, God, speaking to Adam and Eve, and he's handing down the punishments in the fall of the garden, he speaks to the serpent, God does. And he, he prophesies. He speaks of a moment that will happen. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. God is speaking of a time in the future when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be killed on a cross. But God's going to raise him three days, three nights later, and at that point, he will crush Satan's head. He'll break his power, literally break his power. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we look and we find the Lord's genealogy. And we see that he's a direct descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as well as a son of David. And yet we see this in Isaiah, probably one of the most famous verses that we use during the Christmas season, for to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How can he be flesh and God? And yet we see that in Isaiah, way before he even was born in flesh. So Jesus being just like us, in that sense, is absolutely critical to theology. I mean, I want you to understand this. Jesus experienced everything we experience. I mean, he knew, he knew what it's like to be in pain, to be in sorrow, to be hungry, to be in anguish. He experienced what it's like to be fatigued and to eat and to drink and to laugh and to cry. And he knows what it's like to be tempted by Satan. And yet the difference between us and him is simply this, and this is my second point, Jesus never sinned. Jesus never sinned. He was sinless in all his ways. This has been under attack for some time, his sinlessness, and uh, there was a series of books that came out that kind of challenged that whole thing, saying that he had a mistress on the side and all of this stuff, but that's fiction. This is the Word of God, which some people label as fiction. But this is what we see in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And theologically speaking, this is absolutely critical. This is critical. Jesus would become the spotless Lamb of God. And we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What Jesus did was he transferred his righteousness to us, and he transferred our sin to Jesus on the cross of Calvary. That's why he is this spotless lamb. It's, 
It's like the picture of, that we see in the Old Testament, the, the Passover lamb. Many of you, we know, still to this day, the, Israel, uh, the Israelite people, the, or the Jewish people, they still celebrate Passover. And it was a, it's a story that goes way back in their history about how the angel, the death angel was sent to kill the oldest son of every family. And if they'd taken a spotless male lamb and slaughtered it and put the blood on the doorpost, when the death angel came to that house, it would pass over that house and go to the next house. And that's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us. If the blood is applied to our life, then the death passes over us. And it's a wonderful picture of that. Jesus is the sacrifice for all sin. He is the one who Abraham spoke about. Remember when Abraham and his son Isaac were going up the mountain? And Isaac being a, about a teenager and wise enough to realize I've sacrificed, I've been with you with a lot of sacrifices. And Father, we have the fire and we have the knife, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide. What a statement of faith that is, because that's what Jesus did for us. He was the lamb, the sacrifice that God provided for the atonement of our sin. So now, we've approached this simple two verses of our text. We come to this. We view the picture that John wants us to see. We're standing back. He's unfolding the picture before us, and we see the creation in the, of the world in verses 1 through 3, where the Word was with God. And the word is not a what, but it is a who, Jesus Christ, who was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were created. Then we see this, verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And this is my third point, life and light exist to oppose death and darkness. Life and light exist to oppose death and darkness. Why did Jesus come? Why did he come to this earth? Why did he leave the comforts of heaven and the intimate relationship he had with his Father? He did that because he loved us. He did that because he was willing to come to us who had no hope of life or light. And he came to reveal that knowledge to us, his light and his life to us. His light shines in a darkness. Humankind, would you agree with this statement? Humankind lives in a great darkness today. Oh man, you don't even have to go far in the news to get that idea. I mean, it is a dark, dark world out there and it's getting darker. And you would think that with all this darkness, the light would just appear just a little brighter. And it just amazes me that we don't see people rushing to church or rushing to the gospel. I mean, it, it's just it's because they are not quite understanding it. And we see this in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, it says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. And the sad part of all of this is that men do not understand it. <clears throat> And that sounds really glum, it, it sounds really down, you know, it's a Debbie Downer statement, you know, but it's, it's not horrible, because the word came, and he brought with him joy to the captives, and healing to the wings. And consider the following three facts about light. First, the purity of light. 
the purity of light. It's important to understand that Jesus never sinned. His perfection was given to us, and we, when we accepted his invitation and believed by faith that Jesus is the Son of God. And we see in Hebrews chapter 10, by one sacrifice he made perfect forever those who are being made, pure, made holy. So Jesus' purity becomes our purity. I want you just to think about that. Jesus' purity becomes our purity. How many of you feel really pure? <laughs> not too many times, do we? I mean, I don't, I, there's a lot of times I'm getting up, I'm not feeling, I'm not feeling very pastorally. You know, I, you know I'm, a, I, I'm a man, but uh, I'm telling you, I just don't feel that holy sometimes. And I can get angry, and I get self-righteous, and I, I win a lot of arguments to myself. And I can remember sitting in the mirror one time, and I was having an argument in, a, in, a, in some situation, and I won't go into details, but I was sitting there pounding out my points, why I was right and they were wrong. And suddenly, as I was staring at the mirror, I said, oh, <laughs> you ever do this? <laughs> I said, oh, you're really tough, aren't you? <laughs> and you're really smart. And you know what the answer was? No, it wasn't. I'm not that smart. I'm not that bright. But this is very important for us. It, it is very important for us we don't feel holy. We don't feel pure because we know ourselves. But this is important. If we've accepted Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we are pure. We are saved by grace. Not because we deserve it, but because, but because he paid for it. And his grace is great. I think it's important that we understand that Jesus' purity becomes our purity because this is very important. In this dark world, there are a lot of there are a lot of claims out there. There's a lot of masquerading of light out there. There's a lot of answers that people will put forth and say, this is the answer. You know, one of the things I love about Bev, and she's not here, but she was really trying a lot of stuff out in California. And you know what? You can try a lot of stuff out in California and because they got all kinds of answers for things. But we need to remember something that the Apostle Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Not all light is pure. Not all remedies have healing ability. Jesus comes along and he says, bring me your burdens, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord's purity can be ours, but we must never forget there's one who wants to rob that from us and take it from us. And if we try, and he will try his best to get us to talk and run against God. The second fact about light is this, the constancy of that light. This light, this light shines forever. However, just like the Lord's stay on the earth was only for a certain time, his light's going to come to an end here on this earth. And what I mean by that is the opportunity to see Jesus and to talk to Jesus has come and gone on this earth. We'll never see him on this earth in our flesh like this until he comes back. But there is a time on earth when even his light will be taken from this planet and from people on this planet. And to me, that is the scariest part of the book of Revelation. But until then... His light stays bright. Until then, he continues to strive with man. Until then, he pours out his love and care to those who listen for his voice. In fact, the constancy of that light is going to go on even into heaven. 
We see this found in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, it says, There will be no more night. This is heaven. There will be no more night. They will need the light of a, you'll not need a light of a lamp or a light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and he will reign forever and ever. And this is prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19, way before Jesus even came on the scene. It says, The sun will be no more be your light by day, nor your brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. So not only is the light pure, but it is constant when you follow Jesus Christ. Lastly, the third fact, the light is this. It's the victory of that light, the victory of that light. The light shines in a darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. You know, that's that's part of our text, but how many of you have a little footnote on that verse? It says literally, it can be read this way as well in verse in. uh, it can read this way, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Why did they keep that in there? I think the reason they did is because the first way is the way that it looks like in the context. If you read the context of that verse, it reads literally, they do not understand the light. But when you read throughout the entire New Testament and you see the theme, there is a lack of understanding or a, uh, a lack of understanding, but also a lack of the darkness overcoming the light. What is the message of the resurrection? Death couldn't keep him down. Darkness could not prevail. And that is the idea behind that keeping of that, that little footnote in your Bible. And uh, I think it's great But the scholars have kept that footnote there for a reason. Listen, all all one has to do is read the end of the Bible to understand how this all ends. You know the old saying, all you got to do, hey, we're going to win. Because if you read the end of the Bible, guess what? The light's going to be victorious. Now, you might be wondering why are all these facts important to know? Why are all these facts important to know? Well, this life and light that John speaks of is mentioned in another way. Paul, who had been caught up to the third heaven, describes in his writing something that is very, very troubling and yet very, very mysterious. He gives us this fascinating description of God's place. Look at this in 1 Timothy 6.16. Who alone is immortal and who lives in an unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Is there anyone here today who feel comfortable enough in your own merits to go into that kind of light? I mean, by your own merits, you got enough credit with God, you think, that you could walk right into that light. Who Paul described as living in an unapproachable light. How are you going to do that, sir? How are you going to do that, ma'am? I mean, you cannot. You cannot see him who lives forever. Yet the writer of Hebrews, doesn't he say to us that we should have and go into the holy place with confidence? I mean, if we're afraid to go into the light by our own merit, how can we come into the holy place of God's presence with confidence? And the, the answer is simply, not a what, but a who. Jesus Christ. We cannot 
We dare not enter unless Christ, the Word, who is life and light, is also our Lord and Savior. And when we come into that light as God is our Savior, it changes everything. I mean, it changes everything. We come not because of who we are. We come because of Him who has saved us. We come by His purity. We come with confidence because He lived a sinless life. And He came to reveal the light to us. Now I come to that light with my, not with my purity, but with His purity. Not with my light, but His light. And He will not turn us away who has come to reveal to us His salvation. You see, my friends, the truth is, the great truth of the incarnation is that He came to be light for us. He came to be life for us. And by accepting that gift, we can have that light and we can have that life. And we are, do not have to be afraid of death. We do not have to be afraid of what's going to happen. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we thank you. Hey, this is Pastor Wade. Uh, thanks so much for stopping by and listening today. And like always, my prayer is that the Lord would bless you and guard your heart for that day. 